I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Cell therapies are revolutionizing the way cancers are treated, but existing cell therapies have their limitations. They've been more successful at treating hematologic tumors than solid tumors, and they can sometimes cause serious side effects such as the destruction of antibodies or what's known as cytokine storms in which the immune system gets overrevved and attacks healthy cells. Tremvira Immunologics is developing autologous and allergenic T-cell therapies that it believes can address the limitations of existing cell therapies and be used to treat both liquid and solid tumors. We spoke to Paul Lammers, CEO of Triumvira, about the company's platform technology, why it's robust and versatile, and why its lead indication is for a cancer where effective treatments already exist. Paul, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome, and looking forward to it. We're going to talk about T-cell therapies, Triumvira, and its TAC platform for generating T-cell therapies that are less toxic and more effective at treating both hematologic and solid tumors. Perhaps we can begin with the state of cell therapy for cancer. How effective have these therapies been? Well, um, the CAR-T world in within the cell therapy space has had a major impact on the treatment and um, and also the, the life outlook for patients with hemolignancy. So lymphomas, leukemias, and multiple myeloma, all very deadly diseases, still the need for new targeted therapies. And the CAR-Ts have really made an impact. So companies like Novartis, uh, Kite Pharma, uh, which is now part of Gilead, um, you know, uh, Juno Therapeutics that is the, became part of Celgene, that became part of BMS. So they've all brought products to market. There's about six or seven products on the market right now, cell therapies that are directed against heme malignancies. For solid tumors, it's a different world. Uh, clearly, the CAR T's, and we can talk a bit about when we talk a bit more about the technologies per se, have a tough time getting two solid tumors. Um, you know, the nice thing about, or the nice thing, and the lymphomas and leukemias, the, the cancer cells live within your, you know, obviously your your lymphatic or your vascular system. So it's easier for these CAR T cells to reach those tumor cells. In solid tumors, it's quite different because it basically means is that these cells have to get out of your blood system through um, into a stroma um, site to try to find that uh, solid tumor cancer um, cell, and that is that is quite different. So you really need very strong cells that have great durability, have an ability truly to penetrate what you call nowadays a hostile tumor microenvironment, uh, latch on to the antigen that they're targeting on a solid tumor and then kill the tumor cell. So it's quite different. The setup is quite different for solid tumors as it is for heme malignancies. What have been the challenges and limitations of, of these cell therapies? Well, basically, um, the challenges has been that it's mostly related to the safety. So 
The risk with CAR th therapies is that you induce um, basically what you call a cytokine release storm. So you get a massive release of cytokines, growth factors, and others uh, by these cells once they're you know in a patient. Um, and therefore, most patients will have to be dosed either close to or in the ICU. Um, and that really limits, obviously, a wider expansion and use. So a lot of uh, CAR-T companies are focusing to try to find safer modalities. Um, the efficacy has been astounding. If you look back at the first group of patients, especially group of six kids, pediatric um, you know, patients that had acute lymphoblastic leukemia, a very deadly type of leukemia in children, um, five out of the six had a complete response, um, you know, so their tumor disappeared. Um, the first patient ever treated right now is a, I think she's trained now to become an oncology nurse. So she was almost on death's doorstep, um, has fully recovered, has been cured and is doing fantastic. So that's now 10, 12 years later, which is just astounding. So um, a lot of progress being made, um, great efficacy, but safety has been a huge challenge, which means is because of those, the risk of these high toxicities there are age uh, restrictions. So, for instance, if you talk about, for instance, um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia that I mentioned, there is an age restriction. So patients over the age of 25 are not allowed to be treated with this. Why? Because mostly these adults have a too much of a tumor burden, too much tumor cells around, which means this it could lead to these massive cytokine release storms that are really, you know, uh, life-threatening, clearly. Um, so that is the toxicity. So therefore, uh, it's a big issue. Um, and then, as I said earlier, I mean, you know, getting into solid tumors is a whole different, you know, ball game as well. I want to talk about your proprietary technology, but before yeah. we do, I think it might be useful to explain to listeners what MHC molecules are and the role they play in how cell therapies activate against tumors. Yeah. So there is basically. You know, you have B lymphocytes and T lymphocytes that are key parts, components of our immune system that basically react to invaders like, you know, bacteria, viruses, parasites, you name it. Uh, within the T lymphocyte group, um, you have, you know, different types of, of T cells that respond to different triggers. Mostly what happens is a T cell, as it is a key member of your immune um, system, reacts to proteins that are expressed on, on target cells. And that could be either a, a major histocompatibility complex or MHC type 1 or type 2. These are different peptides. So that's how, uh, and it basically means is that when a T cell meets up with a target cell, it has a T cell receptor, the TCR, that helps in connecting with that target cell. But second to there, there is a co-receptor that is either um, what you know called CD4 or CD8 co-receptor that meets up either that helps with the connection with either an MHA1 or MHA2 uh, peptide. So, um, so that's the big difference. You know, so different types of peptides require different types of T cells to connect with and also um, either a choice of a CD4 or CD8 co-receptor. That receptor, co-receptor um, is very important, not only for stabilizing the T-cell, target cell connection through combining with that MHC1 or MHC2 peptide, uh, Danny, but it's also important because it has, it brings important intercellular regulatory mechanism to the T-cell. Um, the key thing is we need to remember 
the T-cell receptor is a very complex receptor organ or receptor structure that has evolved over millions of years in evolution. Um, and it is very finely attuned and balanced to what is the cell encounters basically in the body. So you want to make sure that the T-cell gets activated when it needs to be activated, but it is silent when it does not need to be activated. You don't want to have an overact overactive immune system because that is counterproductive to the host, to, to the body as well. So therefore, these intercellular regulatory mechanism that the co-receptor brings to the forefront as part of the structure is really, really important. And that's also a reason we've built into two parts of that co-receptor into our tax structure ourselves, because we know how important it is to, to regulate a normal activation and or silencing of the T-cell. So let, let's talk about TAP. This is an acronym for T-cell antigen coupler. This is a, a receptor that you engineer into T-cells. What does this do? Yeah, so basically... Um, the reason that it was called a TAC instead of, it is a chimeric antigen receptor just like a car, but the structure and biology are totally different. So um, basically, structure-wise, there are three domains. It's a, what you call a tripartite domain. So the top domain is a lichen binding domain that meets up and that binds to an antigen presented on a cancer cell. That is the same that you can put on a car or on a TAC. It doesn't matter. Uh, you can put their peptides, you can do single-chain antibodies, you can use nanobodies. There's a lot of different lichen-binding domains that are available that you can do there. That lichen-binding domain is linked to a flexible linker to what we call the heart of the tag. That is a proprietary single-chain antibody that binds to the CD3 epsilon domain of the TCR, so the outside of the TCR. So it, a normal T-cell receptor has eight extracellular domains. They're even nominated as alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and epsilon. There are two epsilon domains on the outside. So what happens is a TAC T-cell binds to an antigen presented on the cancer cell. Then it binds to that proprietary single chain to the outside of the TCR. So it brings the TCR into play. And then it brings the third domain is that intercellular part of the CD4 co-receptor that has this important regulatory mechanism. So that's how the TAC. So the TAC itself has no activation domain. It has no co-stimulatory domain, which are normally part of the CAR T cells. We don't have that. So we bring this vector into a T cell through a, um, basically through a plasmid. So we're using a lentivirus that brings that vector into the T cell. So what basically happens is, Danny, so we take blood from a patient. We send it to the, to the lab. We isolate the T lymphocytes. Then we activate those, and then we transfect them you know, with through a lentivirus with the TAC. The TAC vector gets incorporated into the genome, and thus the protein, the vector itself, gets expressed on the surface of the T cells. So it gets anchored in the surface of the T cell. It has the outside, the lichen binding domain stretching out, and then in the inside, it has this intercellular, um, you know, domain. Um, and then we expand the cells to have several billions in the lab. And then what you do, you basically, you harvest the cells. You do mandatory QA release testing that FDA mandates. Then you ship it, you freeze it, you ship it back to the clinic around day 15 uh, from collection, uh, from blood collection. And then you basically schedule the patient to get lymphodepletion, which means is in order for these T cells to have a chance to expand within the body, you need to make sure you get rid of all the existing T cells. So the patient gets chemotherapy for three days. So that is fludarabine in combination with cyclophosphamide. 
and that almost instantaneously lead to uh, your T cells dropping. You bring the new T cells in, they expand, you know, either in the bone marrow or in the tissue, in the tumor itself. And then basically you have a chance to, uh, they start recognizing um, the patient's own cancer. It's like the, optim the optimal personalized medicine, Danny, here, right? So we, we train these cells, we make them that they recognize and kill the patient's own specific tumor cells. One, one of the challenges with existing cell therapies for solid tumors is finding targets that are specific to tumor cells and not present on healthy cells. Uh, does this solve that problem? Well, no, because at the end of the day, I can give you an example. Our, our lead program in the clinic is targeting HER2. Now, HER2 is a very well-known antigen overexpressing tumor, but it is also expressed in many healthy tissues, especially in lung and cardiac tissue. So if you think about products like Arceptin, which is the first HER2-targeted therapy that's been around now for 25 years, indicated for breast cancer and gastric cancer, that has some severe uh, cardiac and pulmonary side effects. The same with products like Lapatinib and other HER2-targeted therapies, even in HER2, which is the latest uh, you know, breakthrough, basically, therapy in, in HER2 space um, that has some significant risk of toxicities. Interestingly enough, we have so far only have seen one dose limiting toxicity in our ongoing clinical trial related to a patient who developed, um, you know, pneumonitis. So basically an, an infection in the lung um, that we truly think might be um, what you call on target off tumor effect. You're pursuing this as a strategy for both autologous and allergenic therapies. I'd like to walk through both those approaches, but one difference between CAR-T and TAC, as I understand it, is that there isn't genetic engineering with TAC. Did, did I get that right? And well, so look, you know, it, it, these are they are genetically engineered. I mean, in terms of uh, non, they're non-genetic, so we're not making any changes to the DNA, right? So what we do is we engineer the T cells to expressing that TAC on the surface that helps them identify and kill the tumor cells. So um, so I think that what happens now in the CAR-T space per se, given the fact that the, the, a lot of academic research trying to modulate the TAC or the CAR, I mean, by, by making genetic editing, you know, into, um, into the cell itself, as an example. So a CAR as a structure works independently of the TCR. The TAC works with the TCR. So if you take, if there's no TCR in a cell, the TAC is totally inactive, Right. It only works by binding to the normal TCR that's present. A car works independently of the TCR. It has its own structure and that is built to produce cytokines. If you manufacture CAR T cells, they start producing cytokines already. And that A, leads to the high risk of cytokine release syndrome. Secondly, these poor cells have to run a marathon, which means is they exhaust easily. So premature exhaustion and lack of persistence are two of the biggest challenges when it comes to CAR T cells. So the nice thing is with the TAC T cells, we see we don't see exhaustion, right? Because if the cell is not met up with a cancer cell presenting an antigen, the TAC T cells is in rest. It stays in a memory phenotype that's not activated at all. It only gets activated when it meets up in a tumor with a cancer cell that presents that antigen with a HER2, Claudin 18.2, you know, no matter the, 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 what we're targeting with the TAC. So I think that is a big difference. So we see, you know, we see uh, no exhaustion, 
premature exhaustion with the DEC T cells, we see a very high level of persistence. They retain a memory phenotype, which is ideal. And, and so therefore, they are what we think is in the ideal adoptive cell therapy cells because they allow us to go after solid tumors, which are really, cool, really tough a cancer type to address with cell therapy. Does it provide any manufacturing benefit over more conventional T cells? Well, the manufacturing, so the two parts, where well, you mentioned already autologous versus allogeneic. So let's talk a bit about the autologous. I described the process already of sending, uh, you know, blood from the patient to the lab, you know, extract the T lymphocyte, activating them, transfecting them, expanding them, and then sending them back, right? That's the autologous manufacturing process. It is cumbersome. It is. Uh, it takes time, right? Because it basically means is you are reinfusing the cells about 21 to 24 days after you collect the blood in the first place. So the patient might progress because these are advanced cancer patients, right? So the patient has a chance to progress. Now, we are using a machine known as a cocoon platform. It is a, it's an automated closed system that was developed by Lonza, one of the big cell manufacturings in the world. We realized that automation is the future of autologous manufacturing because that current process that I described is very dollar intensive, is very FTE intensive, it takes up a lot of space. So clearly automation is the way of the future. So what happens now is with this cocoon, you have to picture this as a like a big microwave size. So you open it up, you put the cells from the patients in a cassette in that machine, you close the machine, and don't, you don't touch anything, it's iPad controlled. Nine days later, you harvest the cells, and then you do the mandatory release testing and ship it back. It's a perfect, it is it's close, it's neat, it is clean, it is easy, scalable. So right now in our own manufacturing suites in South San Francisco, we have eight cocoons um, you know, that we are using and gonna use going forward. A single co cocoon can generate tech T cells for about 30 patients a year. So with eight, we can do you know more than two hundred patients uh, worth of tech T cells, which is adequate for our for our clinical trial needs. And even if you look at it um, in a five thousand square foot facility, you can place eighty cocoons and you can generate tech T cells for more than twenty four hundred patients a year. So for even for early stages of commercialization, Danny, that would be perfect. Now that's autologous, right? And it compare that what we call now the old standard way of, of manufacturing with the back, what they call the back method. That is what the, the Novartis and others are using for Camarilla Escarta. That's very dollar intensive. You need a lot of space because you have all different machinery. You need to bring it from one machine to the other machine to another machine. So there's a risk of operating error and what have you. A lot of out of spec challenges so far. We have had with the use of the cocoon 100% manufacturing success rate. But with Kimraya and also, I mean, Novartis was the first company where they were in the lead with Kimraya with their product for lymphoma. They had to go to the FDA and ask the FDA permission to give the patients the cells back, although the cells did not meet their, their manufacturing specifications. So they were out of spec. But obviously, we need to realize that these cells are gold, not only for us as companies, but especially for the patient. And I strongly feel, as well as all the other companies, if a patient is taking part in a cell therapy study and is given his or her blood, that patient needs or deserves to get their cells back because that's the only chance they still have on a response. Remember, these are all advanced cancer patients. They have had five, six, up to 10 previous therapies already. And this is really almost like call at the end of the line if you want to. So that's really important.
but the automation in autologous manufacturing makes a massive difference. On the allergenic side, so allergenic came up, but the idea is instead of a patient-derived autologous, we're using cells from healthy donors. So we have healthy, we screen healthy donors, they give their blood, we test their cell makeup, and to see can we make these cells into, um, you know, these kind of CAR T cells. The challenge there is the risk of graft-versus-host disease. If I give you blood from a stranger, then your body will react to that. And it could be in a very severe matter, right? So that's the biggest challenge. So what a lot of companies do, they start making gene editing to the T-cell receptor and try to knock out certain parts of that in order to minimize the risk of graft-versus-host. The nice thing with the donor-derived cells, you can make, you can create them in advance. So you can create what you call master cell banks that you have massive numbers of doses available on the shelf. So you call it an on-the-shelf therapy instead of an, a patient-derived, it's an, an off-the-shelf. So you can make these master cell banks, put them on the shelf, the patient comes in, and then you make it a specific, you take a master cell bank, you take a dose out of that, make that specific to the patient, and then re-inject that into the patient. The nice thing is, it means is you can start treating a patient in about day five or six instead of day 20 to 21 to 24. But the biggest problem, as I mentioned, graft-versus-host disease and a lack of persistence. These cells, they might be active, but they don't work long. I can give you an example. An autologous CD19 therapy for lymphoma works for about five months. An allergenic version works for one month. So you can see where the hematologist said, hey, you know what my preference is? The thing that works for five months. So now they're already thinking about strategies to say, look, if I have a patient who has lymphoma that progressive really fast, I can give him the aloe because I can treat the patient within five days already and then transition that same patient over to an autologous therapy down the road. So, you know, aloe was the big, you know, answer to some manufacturing challenges. Pharma companies love aloe. Why? They realize that for the old-fashioned autologous manufacturing system. You need to build massive manufacturing facilities. Um, you know, as an example, Celgene built a 150,000 square foot facility in New Jersey. Um, Kite Pharma for Europe market built a huge one outside of Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. Um, so, um, but it's cumbersome. It's expensive. Building, you know, big manufacturing facilities makes it very expensive. And that also drives up the cost of these therapies. I mean, People need to realize a, a treatment with Kim Rye is $475,000, and that's only for the cell therapy. All the other costs, especially the hospitalization and everything comes with it, you're looking about a you know, um, million and a half, $2 million cost total. As a developer of these therapies, how do you decide whether to pursue a autologous or allergenic therapy? We decided, Danny, to develop both platforms. Despite the fact that autologous was the first one, then it became a huge wave. Well, it has to be allo. It has to be allo. It's cheaper. It's faster. Um, however, you know, some of the problems, especially the lack of persistence and, and still the risk associated with graft-versus-host disease, a lot of people say, well, allo is great, but it's not right for, you know, prime, you know, time yet. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, Ari Beldegroen, the founder and chairman of Allogene, which is the premier allogeneic cell therapy company, 
even at JP Morgan, you know, in January did an interview and said people need to realize that allogeneic is not a replacement for autologous manufacturing. It's not. So, uh, and he said, allo will still take five to seven years because it's fully can hit prime time. So we felt, Danny, as a company at Trinavera, it would be good for us to develop both platforms. So we have an autologous platform using the cocoon. And then we have, we're building an allogeneic platform based on so-called gamma delta cells, which is a separate subtype of, of your T cells. And they have a very low risk of graft versus host disease. And in, in, you know, in the lab so far, uh, preclinically, we have shown that the, the, um, the gamma delta tech T cells perform as good as the standard, what you call alpha beta tech T cells. So that's very encouraging for us. So we hope to bring, we're on the clinic with our autologous. We'll have two programs in the clinic uh, second half this year on the autologous side. We're bringing our first allogeneic product into the clinic next year. Your lead experimental therapy is for HER2 expressing tumors. You're conducting a, a phase one study for it. Why start with HER2 given how many therapies are available to, to treat those today? It's a great question, Danny, and a question we get often. And the reason is, we have so far, we had so far when we started an unvalidated, totally new technology platform. So if we would have picked a, a new, you know, um, you know, unknown target, then it's very difficult to interpret the data, right? You have an unknown target with an unknown platform. How do you interpret the data? So we said, look, and the oncologist encouraged us to use her too. They said, look, we know there are products out there, especially for breast and gastric, Right. And there's quite a few in development. We all know that too. But there's still a high of a need because even if you think about Inheritu, which is the greatest thing in her two uh, space right now, and last year at ASCO, the uh, Dr. Modi who presented, I got a five-minute standing ovation because the data was astounding. Um, patients break through on Inheritu. So there's always the need for novel targeted therapies. So they said, look, do her two. It's a great proof of concept in the clinic that the platform works. We have now shown that clinical proof of concept, so we have good safety. We see some very intriguing, you know, initial signs of efficacy in, in these late-stage, very advanced patients. So hopefully we intend to go in, into a phase two-part second half, which means we can start treating patients earlier in their treatment um, route, so to say, so we can go for second and third line instead of being 10th or 11th or 12th line therapy. You have several other candidates that are in discovery and preclinical testing. What's the timeline for introducing new candidates into the clinic? Yeah, so we intend, so we have our HER2 ongoing. We're going into HER2 in our phase two, the expansion this year, second half this year. And then the second half, we also intend to submit an IND in May for Claudin 18.2 targeting TAC, which is a fascinating new target, especially for gastric and pancreatic cancer. Uh, so we hope to start that study around August, September. Um, and then we have two other targets uh, for the future. One is called GPC3, which is especially good for liver cancer, primary liver cancer, and then Gucci2C, which is a great target for colorectal cancer. So those will be targeted for getting into the clinic in 2025. So we'll have a broad and promising pipeline and solid tumors in a couple of years. You also announced a collaboration to evaluate your HER2 candidate in combination with Keytruda, which is an immune checkpoint inhibitor. What's the case for combining attack therapy with other immunotherapies like Keytruda? Well, so that's a great question, Danny. So 
there is a scientific rationale that, as I mentioned earlier, I mentioned a hostile tumor microenvironment. So tumors are really smart. So they dampen the immune system in the tumor. So the immune system doesn't really get the chance to kill the cancer cells, what they're intended to do. Um, so what happens is you have a, a checkpoint inhibitor like Etruda, pembrolizumab. What they do is they take the breaks off that on that immune system that the cancer imposes. So we think there's a good rationale to say, okay, if we want our cell therapies to last longer, have a longer activity, of course, while being safe, it might be a good idea to combine it with a product like Keytruda. So Merck was interested in our technology. They agreed to provide Keytruda free of charge for the study, which is huge benefit to us because Keytruda, as you might know, is about $150,000 a year per patient. It's expensive. So that was really nice. So we announced that in the first week of January. And we're going to start it also the second half this year, the combination with Katruda. Trevera completed a Series A financing for a total of $100 million last year. This was an extension of the round first announced in 2020. How far will existing cash take you and what's the plan for future funding? Well, it's a good point. I mean, cell therapy is a very dollar-intensive business, Danny. So our, our phase one funding will last until the middle of this year. So we are actively, you know, pursuing a new round of financing. Um, clearly, uh, right now, biotech financing is a bit in the doldrums, um, you know. So I think it's not the, the prettiest time. Uh, the good thing is that we have good safety. We see interesting signs of efficacy. Hopefully, um, we have very committed inside investors already that took part in the Series A um, they like to co-invest. We are trying really hard to try to get an, an outside investor to come in now um, and complete that round, you know, in the middle of this year that will give us a runway um, that will allow us to uh, do a lot of the great things that we have in mind. Paul Lammers, CEO of Trimvira. Paul, thanks so much for your time today. Great to talk, Danny. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.